0: Hey, great to be with you this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, you might want to grab it. If you don't, we'd love to give you one. Info at eaglemontchurch.ca will get you a Bible. Uh, When we started this Problem of God series on Easter Sunday, April 12th, uh, using the book and the titles by the author's permission, uh, we gave away several copies of of this book. There's three more copies, giving them away to people who are are seeking to kind of connect the dots on Christianity and and figure it all out. And so if you're uh, seeking from a not-yet-convinced perspective, we'd love to get you uh, a book. You can text uh, the word. Uh, seeking to the number below and Beaumont residents will even deliver it to your door. The first three people uh, to text uh, the word seeking to the number you see on the screen. We'd love to give you a book. Today in the last message of this series, we look at the problem of the Christ myth. The word myth comes from the Greek mythos, which Uh, has a range of meanings from uh, story to saying to fiction. And mythos can be contrasted with the Greek word logos, which in the English is translated the word. And uh, it's a reference to truth that can be validated, that can be demonstrated and argued for. And I share this because logos is the Greek word that the disciple John used in reference to Jesus Christ in his New Testament gospel letter about the life of Christ that he wrote, very first verse in that letter, John 1, 1. He wrote, in the beginning was the word, Greek again, logos, and the word referencing Jesus, the word was God. The very simple point is that John intentionally chose this greek word logos to refer to jesus because as someone who followed jesus he knew that jesus was no myth and yet today there's an idea called the christ myth it claims that jesus christ did not exist uh, and that the details of his life uh, were merely borrowed from ancient myths uh, in spite of the immense historically reliable evidence that says otherwise. The Christ myth idea surfaced in the late 18th century with two French writers who put forward the position that this Jesus Christ that Christians worshipped was nothing more than one of many mythological characters. Uh, these ideas have resurfaced uh, more recently with the internet and with mass uh, distribu- uh, dr- distribution of information from, uh, as gotquestions.org website pu- puts it, uh, from unreliable sources. So this information is uh, has been gaining uh, some steam in the last number of years. Uh, in his book, The Problem of God, the author Mark Clark says that these Christ myth claims are not taken seriously really by legitimate scholars. He even quotes uh, a skeptical scholar like Bart Ehrman who uh, does not accept many of the claims of Christianity and yet he wrote a book called Does Jesus Exist? about Jesus of Nazareth, uh, arguing that he was in fact a historical figure. As a matter of fact, the description of his book on Amazon.ca says that Ehrman methodically demonstrates and demolishes the myth arguments against the existence of Jesus. Interesting. Of course, historians and scholars certainly, uh, they debate the various aspects of Jesus' life, uh, whether he was God or not, uh, what he said or thought about various social issues and so on, but they, they virtually all unanimously affirm that he existed. But still, Christ myth advocates claim that aspects of mythological gods like Horus, uh, Mithras, Dionysus, uh, which predate Jesus, have parallels with Christ. And so in their minds, then, the followers of Jesus must have made up or must have copied uh, from those mythical figures and applied those details to their mythical Jesus. Clark says the Christ myth falls apart with just a small amount of historical study. And yet, again, it's it's still a, a an issue for some people. And it's an important one for us to address because it can be a hindrance to, uh, to a skeptic coming to the place of personally trusting Jesus and, and what he did for, for them for their eternal salvation. So, that's why we're talking about it today. And so, the core question, did Jesus exist? Well, first of all, there are, uh, there are numerous uh, first century historians and writers uh, outside of the Bible who mentioned Jesus of Nazareth by name. Uh, These writers are Jewish, they're Roman. uh, Most of them are not friends of Christianity. As a matter of fact, uh, many of them had an agenda uh, in direct opposition to to Christianity. Uh, Among the most well-known historian that spoke of Jesus and wrote about the life of Jesus, uh, first century historian, Jewish historian, uh, named Josephus. Listen to what he wrote. About this time, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one could call him a man, for he performed surprising feats. When Pilate condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. On the third day, he appeared, restored to life, and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Quite a statement from a Jewish non-Christ-following historian. Secondly, if Jesus was just a myth, you'll have a very difficult time explaining why under intense persecution, his following grew from 12 disciples to just, uh, well, to millions in, in just over around 350 years. Explain why so many men and women were willing to die for an imaginary jesus and many times terrible torturous deaths there's a logical explanation as to why christianity grew so fast and it runs it runs significant interference with the christ myth uh, the christ myth idea that explanation is not only that he actually did exist but that he proved his claim to be god in in human flesh and the key evidence was the the over 500 eyewitnesses who saw him alive after he had been crucified. And contrary to some silly arguments, nobody survived Roman crucifixion. Jesus rose from the dead and thus offered this this eternal life, this life that is truly life, as as Paul wrote about that to a letter he sent to his young uh, apprentice named Timothy in the New Testament. Life that is truly life because Jesus rose, and he offers it to anyone who would choose to repent of their sin and and surrender to to him. There's a New Testament letter that a guy named Paul wrote um, and sent to a group of Christ followers in the city of Corinth in the mid-50s. That is 53 to 57 AD. Uh, There were no no classic Bel Air, uh, Chevy Bel Airs at the time. Uh Uh, In the mid-50s, literally, he wrote this letter, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. In that chapter, Paul makes the case, makes a clear and and, and historically reliable case for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, that's big news. That, that, That changes everything. Paul goes on to accurately point out that if Jesus did not rise from the dead, Christianity crumbles. It really does. And he puts it this way in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, he said, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless or our message is useless. And, and so is your faith. It's true. But Christianity didn't crumble. It, it thrived from the beginning because this Jesus rose to life after he had been brutally killed. I mean, that, that's someone worth following. The next question, what about the parallels to mythological gods? Uh, Of the several examples that Clark uh, offers in his book, um, I'll only highlight one, uh, partly for time's sake, but also because the inconsistencies are similar in each of the attempted comparisons of these various ancient gods. Uh, Let's consider the god Horus who was an ancient god worshipped from early Egyptian history right up to the Greco-Roman period. Uh, Advocates of the Christ myth, like the creators of the Zeitgeist movie, uh, claim that Horus was uh, born on December 25th of a virgin. Uh, They say that three kings came to adore the uh, savior Horus. Uh, At age 30, he was baptized and began a ministry. Uh, They claim that Horace had 12 disciples, was crucified, and resurrected after three days. Well, here are the facts, actually. Horace and Jesus do not share a birthday. There are actually two other dates besides December 25th on record for Horace's birthday. But the main point here is about the birthday of Jesus we actually don't know the exact day that Jesus came into this world. It was actually Pope Julius I in uh, about 350 AD it was, who uh, selected a day in the year to celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And he chose December 25th to challenge the pagan celebration of a Roman God at the time, uh, that same day. I, I don't know the Pope's motive, but strikes me kind of as a little, you know, in your face moment, that's good. Uh, but the point is that early Christians did not pull this detail from ancient mythology and apply it to their, as Christ myth advocates claim, their fabricated Jesus. Uh, Horace's mom, her name was Isis and she was not a virgin. She was the widow of uh, Osiris and uh, conceived uh, Horus with him, albeit in a in a very unique way, which I won't take time to share. But again, not factual uh, information that we're hearing on that. There's also regarding the three kings. There's no record of three kings visiting Horus at his birth. Uh, not only that, but the Bible never even says that there were three kings uh, at the manger when Jesus was born. Uh, this is this is a common misunderstanding, actually. Um, Uh, Matthew's account mentions uh, the magi came. And magi were uh, astrologers or magicians, and they had heard about uh, Jesus' birth. Uh, But the Bible doesn't say that there were three men, only that there were three gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh, like we see at every Christmas pageant uh, at your kid's school. Uh, But not only that, these magi were not at the manger at the time of Jesus' birth. They came to a house somewhere where Jesus was uh, when Jesus was uh, probably around two years old. So some misguided information there. Uh, also, Horus was not baptized. The only account, the only account of Horus that involves water is a story where Horus is, is torn to pieces and his mother requests the crocodile god to fish him out of the water. And Horus also did not have a ministry, as is claimed. Uh, regarding the claim that Horus had 12 disciples. Uh, the primary source of uh, for this would be the Egyptian hieroglyphs, but they state that Horus only had four disciples. In another place, it says that he had up to 16, but 12 is, is not mentioned. And then about the supposed crucifixion and resurrection of Horus, I'll read right from The Problem of God book. Clark writes... Horus was not crucified between two thieves, nor resurrected from the dead three days later. In most of the stories, Horus doesn't die at all. There is only one questionable story in which he does die, but he's cut into pieces by an enemy and thrown into the water. The closest thing to a resurrection parallel is that he's fished out of the water by crocodiles. Reference to the story that I mentioned a moment ago. And Horus is not a savior in any way. He he did not die for anyone. So there are are scholarly, there are specific and scholarly issues with this Christ myth idea, since repeatedly the facts are are misrepresented to force parallels with Christianity. Uh, The Christ myth loses credibility, I feel, because it it gets the facts wrong about Christianity itself. The Zeitgeist movie and and other sources uh, talk about the supposed uh, symbolic number 12 in the Bible. Now, although there are 12 tribes referenced and talked about in the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, the Bible doesn't mention other groups like 12 princes, 12 kings, 12 judges. Yes, 12 disciples in the New Testament, but uh, a reference to 12 princes, 12 kings, 12 judges, as the movie claims, are symbolic numbers uh, in in the Bible. It's just not the case. Uh, Something else, else worth briefly mentioning is Uh, There's something called terminological fallacy, and it occurs when words are redefined uh, in order to be used or misused uh, as an attempt to prove a point. An example, when the word baptism, um, or or when the baptism comparison is made between uh, Christ myth advocates and and Christians, they, they talk about this baptism uh, parallel with respect to uh, Mithras, the ancient god Mithras. Uh, and really, there's no comparison at, at all, as you'll see. The priests in the worship of Mithras would put newcomers to the religion into a pit. They would suspend a bull uh, over the pit and they would slice open, I'm sorry, it's gross, they would slice open uh, the bull's stomach and blood and all the entrails would would cover the people in the pit, well, that practice bears no resemblance whatsoever to Christian baptism, which is a person going under the water, symbolizing uh, the death of Christ and their identification with Christ, and the person coming up out of the water, symbolizing the resurrection of Christ and their uh, new life uh, because of that resurrection. But advocates of this uh, mythological Jesus uh, idea deceptively use the term baptism in in hopes of linking the two in order to discredit the one. Uh, It's terrible, and, and some people believe the lie. More examples could be given from other mythological gods, but the result is the same. The alleged similarities between the historical account of the life of Jesus and these pagan myths are greatly exaggerated. And uh, even if there were, though, uh, even if there were clear similarities, how does that that have any bearing on the truth of the existence of Jesus or the the veracity of the elements of his life, his earthly life, as historians have recorded those details? It it, it doesn't. I, I like, the paragraph from uh, gotquestions.org that I referenced already in this message. Listen to this. It, it says If one thing precedes another, some conclude that the first thing must have caused the second. This is the fallacy of the false cause. A rooster may crow before the sunrise every morning, but that does not mean the rooster causes the sun to grow. Kind of a silly illustration, but it's true. Even if pre-Christian accounts of mythological gods closely resembled Christ, the author says, and they do not, it does not mean they caused the gospel writers to invent a false Jesus. Making such a claim is akin to saying the TV series Star Trek caused the NASA space shuttle program. Hm, that's a good statement. Do we really think that Christianity has to fall apart even if there were direct parallels between Jesus Christ and these ancient gods? Any any supposed or actual similarity has no bearing on Jesus Christ being a a true historical person who who secured our eternal salvation through his death and resurrection. I mean, that truth stands on its own with many, many reliable eyewitnesses and and the extreme care with which early biblical manuscripts were, uh, were meticulously copied and passed along. Something else to be aware of. While these mythical, or mythological figures uh, do predate Christianity, there's very, very little uh, that is historically recorded of the pre-Christian religions. The vast majority of the earliest writings for these ancient religions are uh, in the, uh, in between the third and fourth centuries. And so, A.D., so instead of Christians borrowing from ancient religions to create uh, a supposed mythological Christ, it's more logical to attribute any similarities that there may be to those religions copying from the record of Jesus' life, actually. A few final observations. A quote from H.G. Wells uh, summarized it this way. He said, I am a historian, I am not a believer. But I must confess as a historian that the penniless preacher from Nazareth is irrevocably the, uh, is irrevocably the very center of history. Jesus Christ, he says, is, the, is e- easily the most dominant figure in history. The most dominant figure in history. That's quite a statement. Well, what makes him dominant? as Wells uses the word. Probably, I, I think a safe uh, assumption would be that in Wells' mind, it's because of, of the great compassion that Jesus is known for, that he had for people, and, and, and probably as well his, his influence uh, that probably came out of, to some degree, that compassion, of course. But in Wells' mind, he's probably thinking of the compassion and the following that Jesus had through the centuries from the time he walked the earth. But, but why? Why such significant influence and and such an astounding following of one man? It it is, or I should ask it this way, is it just because he was a very compassionate person? There's been a lot of compassionate people. I mean, Jesus was certainly among the top or the top, but is it just because he loved people so much and was willing to die a brutal death on the cross for the payment of their sin? Well, that's very significant. But unfortunately for us, uh, fortunately for us, fortunately for us is what I meant to say, uh, that's not all. His influence and his vast sustained following over the centuries is because he actually rose from the dead, showing that he could defeat sin, he could defeat death, he could defeat sins and death's power over us. I mean, that's a a game changer. That's an eternal game changer. He rose from the dead to prove that he is the only one who could give us the gift of eternal life where there would otherwise be eternal separation from our loving God because of our sin. And if that's true, then Jesus is more than worthy of our, uh, our love and our surrender. You see, sometimes people decide whether they will believe in Jesus or not based on, based on whether they're willing to surrender to Him or not. They, they uh, well, I, I need to say something, and I, and I wanna say this respectfully, and I, and I do, that that is not a, a, a position of integrity. Because if you look at the facts seriously, and you truly investigate, and part of that is reading the Gospels in the New Testament, and you conclude in your mind that, yeah, you know what the, this does make sense about Jesus and about his life, and he probably was God or is God and and savior and 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 thus worthy of uh, a human being's worship and surrender. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I up here, I believe that, and yet if you if you say that and then and then you try to convince yourself that you don't believe because you know what it will require of you, that that's just got to be a very uncomfortable position. And and maybe that's you today. My friend, surrendering to the God who created you to be in relationship with Him does not have to be a scary thing. He knows you best and loves you most. Surrendering to Him does does not have to be a scary thing. And yet giving up the leadership of our individual life I get it. It, it, It's a hard pill for, for a lot of people to swallow. And sadly, that keeps them stuck in a place of keeping God out of their lives. But again, surrendering to God, even though not an easy thing necessarily, but I'll say it again, it does not have to be a scary thing. It's the best thing you could do with your one solitary life to experience Life that is truly life that Jesus wants to give. Not not to mention the amazing gift of eternal life with with our loving God in heaven. I want to ask you, if this applies to you today, what's keeping you from taking that step, that step of faith, yes, but it's not a check your brains at the door thing either. That's why we've done this, this study over these last 10 weeks. But what's keeping you from... Taking that step toward Christ in, in faith and placing your life and your eternity in God's hands, asking him to forgive you of your sin and begin to lead your life. What's keeping you from making that eternal, eternity-altering decision? In the New Testament book of Acts, there's, there's a conversation between the Apostle Paul, who was formerly strongly opposed to this group of early Christian Uh, Christ followers, but but then Paul actually met Jesus personally, and you can read about that in that historical book of Acts in the New Testament in chapter 9. And so later on, after that supernatural meeting of Jesus and Paul, and Paul's surrendering to Jesus, uh, later on, as a as a missionary, as a as a spokesman in the then known world for Jesus, Paul had a conversation. He was in uh, Athens, and he had a conversation with some philosophers and some elite thinkers uh, of the day. And uh, um, he, we, we we read about this in, again in this historical book, uh, New Testament book, that Luke, who who was by the way a, a physician, so he cared about detail. And, and he was a historian, um, a quality uh, historian, actually. Um, in Acts 16, or sorry, Acts 17, he, he wrote about this conversation uh, in the first century um, that shows that Jesus was not mistaken for an ancient God. Paul told these elite thinkers, these philosophers about Jesus and about the resurrection of Jesus and the significance of that, and, and these These thinkers in Athens, this is what they said, listen, out of Acts 17. Paul seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They 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 were so intrigued that they said this to Paul. We want to know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming. For you're bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know what these things mean. Well, clearly, if Paul was simply rehashing stories of ancient mythological gods, the people in Athens that day would not have referred to his teaching as new. Pretty clear. My friends, Jesus Christ is unique in history. His his voice, his life, his words, uh, his, his resurrection rises above all false gods, and as the resurrected Savior of the world, he asks each one of us the same question that he posed his own disciples when he was on earth. And he said, and and this question, how we respond to it, will determine our eternal destiny, where we will spend eternity. It really will. Jesus says to his disciples way back then, and he says to us today, who do you say that I am? In Matthew 16, who do you say that I am? And we've all got to make a choice on that. We do. Who do you say that Jesus is? And if he is the God of the universe that died and rose for you again, I ask, what's keeping you from surrendering your life to someone who loves you that much that he would do that? What's keeping you from surrendering to God today? My prayer is that you would You would let nothing, you would let no one keep you from inviting God to be the forgiver of your sin and the leader of your life and and your eternal friend. You can do that right now simply by something we call prayer that is just talking to God, telling him that you want him to take that place of leadership in your life and that you're turning from your old way of living, living, recognizing that he has a way a good way for for life to be lived in this world and, and the gift of eternal life. If you want to invite Christ to be the forgiver of your sin, the leader of your life, I'm going to invite you to pray with me by saying, Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for sending your son, Jesus. Jesus, I thank you that you voluntarily came and stepped in, to the place of judgment for sin, you stepped in for me. Thank you for that. Because sin deserves judgment, and we're all born in sin. And so today, God, I surrender to you. I yield my life to you. I invite you, please, I ask you, forgive my sin. Please begin to lead my life, because you're so loving, and you're so wise, and you created me. I want you to be my leader. And to be my friend thank you for your gift of grace that i now receive by faith in jesus name amen there's a verse i want to remind you of in romans 6:23 it says for the wages of sin is death or the result of sin is death and death is a word that just means separation separation from god eternally the wages the result of sin is that but the last part of the verse is the good news romans 6:23 same writer under God's direction, this guy called Paul. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. As we trust him, we have that gift. And some of you may have reached out to God and received that gift from him today. And if you did, I would love to hear about that. I would love to uh, be able to have the opportunity, uh, if you wish, to get some resources into your hands that will help you establish and put roots down in this new relationship with your creator. Uh, love to, to hear about it, to, to give you a virtual high five and, and, and be excited with you. That's, it's worth celebrating. It really is. Um, and if you accepted Christ today and surrendered to him, you just invite you to text uh, Jesus to the cell number that you see on the screen. And thank you for trusting us with uh, that contact information. We'd we'd love to come along as a a support and encouragement to you in your new walk and your new relationship uh, with Christ. Um, A a brief but important uh, reminder for the Eaglemont family here before we close, uh, please remember to do the uh, to, to do the very brief uh, two-question survey actually uh, in the email that we sent to you on Friday. It's, uh, it's about uh, the future in-person gathering and when we'll meet and we, we wanna hear from you. It's, uh, it's to help us um, in, in getting ready, uh, getting a reading on uh, engagement and on availability and willingness of people to serve in a variety of ways and, and obviously some new tasks. That will be needed as we, as a church, honor uh, and want to honor the health protocols uh, when we when we do gather in person. Uh, as a staff, we're we're close to nailing down a, a date, but we just felt there's wisdom in in hearing from you, church family. So please respond to that email and that very brief uh, survey. If you didn't receive that email for any reason. Uh, Uh, please uh, email info at eaglemontchurch.ca and we'll we'll get you one. Um, And I also want to stress that needs to be completed by the end of the day this Wednesday. So thanks uh, very much for uh, your attention to that. So thanks everyone for uh, uh, being together in this virtual way today. I just pray that you'll have an awesome week. God bless you.